The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Powell. If you were a uni student around the year 2000, you might remember that you could draw down student loans, ostensibly for living, but we would all know stories of people who turned them into trips, parties, or other forms of massive future liability. I went on a study trip to Russia online and resented the debt for years. But how many people do you know who were onto it enough to use that opportunity as the seed capital to kickstart an investment career that now sees today's guest running a company with one billion under management that's returned 350 million to its clients? That's pretty wild. Mike Taylor, founder of Pi Funds, turned that $3,000 and some other funds into 200k, attracting investment enough to go out on his own. And then the financial crisis hit. He battled through, bought while the getting was good, and was able to build his way to some of the best returns in the business. Today, his company are involved in funds management, wealth advisory, and Juno KiwiSaver that offers a low-fee model that they're now challenging the industry to match. I got to know Mike when I did some writing for his company and was amazed at his story. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him as a guest on the podcast today. Kia ora Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Hey, so tell me first up, like, how did you first get interested in investment? Because that's not really the, the typical story of kind of a university age person. No, it's not. I guess I started getting investing, interested in investing at school. Um there was some kind of competition that was run for school students uh, every year. I remember you could go into class and you'd pick stocks. Uh, this is in the mid-90s, and that sort of piqued my interest in the beginning. But then probably at about 18, so around 98, uh, I, I felt uh, this was something I really wanted to, get, wanted to get into. So I started to teach myself because uh, my parents weren't interested in um it just wasn't what they did. Um, Mum was a nurse and, and uh, Dad was a pilot, and it's not not they not their chosen field of, of endeavour or interest. Um, so for me, I, I couldn't turn to them. Uh, didn't really have any friends or extended family. I just had to go to the library and learn, and that's what I did. Uh, and so I try to read as many books as possible. But then, of course, I wanted to test this out in real life. Uh, and around about that time. You know, you could get those interest-free student loans, uh, and that's precisely what I did. Built up sort of about $3,000, uh, and off I went with my first investment. What was the, what was the interest? Like, what, 
what made you had you had kind of heroes that you followed or or things that you thought were there um yeah was there anything in the culture that made you kind of like want to be like that i think maybe it's because i'm a bit lazy and uh, i saw this as a way to make money without having to work Although, of course, you know, you do have to work because you've got to do the research. But for me, it wasn't manual labor. Uh, a lot of jobs that, we, you know, people get when you're 18, 19, you actually is manual work. Uh, so I saw this as I could make money a lot faster than I could by um, doing some gardening and mowing lawns. What was your investment thesis? Like, uh, what, what did you first decide to kind of uh, go out and do? Pretty simple, really. I just buy something I thought was going to go up. <laughs> Um, or buy ideas I thought could be were scalable, really. Um, I think at the time one of my earlier investments was the warehouse when they were expanding. Um, as it turned out, they expanded into Australia, which was a bit of a disaster for them. But at the, at the time, the idea sounded good. Um, you know, there was a red shed everywhere, and the more red sheds there were, the more money they would make. Uh, so that seemed like a good investment. So that was the kind of idea I had. What did people say when you, um, you know, as, as kind of a, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 is this? Like, what, what, what would people say when you were saying that you wanted to do this? I guess I studied finance. So there are other finance um, undergrads in the class who might have been doing similar things. Not many, uh, but we'd, at least we're talking about it. Um, around about that time was the dot-com bubble. So there were lots of technology companies around the world as well that, had big valuations that were exciting, and I had lecturers that were talking about trading themselves. Um, and I, th I think, you know, I was the guy who was almost kind of ducking out of lectures uh, to check prices and things around those times. And what was the journey then? So you finished a uh, degree and then went into working for banking? Yeah, finished university and uh, obviously wanted to go into what back then was kind of traditional broking, uh, but the industry had sort of really been hollowed out here after 1987, so for the next sort of 10 years it was in, it was in decline. Uh, and so there weren't a hell of a lot of jobs around. Um, we didn't have that kind of open outcry market anymore, we had computerised trading and they needed less people and less staff, so it was not a big industry, there was no KiwiSaver, all that kind of stuff, so it was there weren't any, any real jobs. Uh, so I got a job at, at, at the bank, basically, um, to sort of do something that was kind of along the lines that I might want to do. But lending money to people um, was, was not my cup of tea. Uh, so I was really just biding time. And I just kept door knocking till eventually I got a job. And along that time, you'd been building your own investments. Yeah. Uh, that's right. So yeah, I started with that three grand. Um, my parents did loan me a bit of money as well, um, which they charged interest on. Uh, so that one had to be paid back faster than the uh, other loan, which was interest-free. And I guess from there, I just it just grew. Um, I just threw everything I had at it, you know. Um, when it's such a passion, you're reading about it all the time, you're thinking about it all the time. And I guess in those early years, I did make some spectacular returns. And you, you built up to about 200k odd, and then what was the decision to jump out on your own? How did you do that? Well, I probably wanted to jump out on my own a lot earlier than that, to be honest. I, I, 
I, I remember thinking maybe, because I went on, on my own at 27, I remember thinking, oh, I could do this at 23, but I spoke to some you know, wise people who said, oh, you need a few more years' work experience, and I guess that was kind of helpful. Uh, the decision to go eventually was that uh, after a while of managing my own money, some friends and family said, oh, can you look after my investments too? So it actually started to build up a client base anyway. Uh, and then I happened to meet a guy who was willing to put some capital into a, you know, a proper business to get this thing off the ground. Is it very common for people to set up at 27 for something like managing money? Which, when you kind of think about it in your head, everyone puts out kind of images of, you know, multi-generational or, you know, all these kind of grey-haired, um, you, you know, uh, old experienced advisors and stuff. Like, how, how challenging is it to, to set up something like that at 27? I think it's pretty much unheard of, really, uh, especially just by yourself. Uh, it's very unusual. You normally see someone who's probably 45 to 50 will go out on their own at that point because they've had 20 years' experience and, you know, people will back them. And working maybe for, like, a name house or something. Exactly. You know, I work for Goldman Sachs and now I can go out on my own type thing, not just Mike Taylor who's done a bit of stuff for himself. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how, how did you go about getting that, that first, you know, hang, hanging the sign up and... and yeah, and then and then what happened next in two thousand and eight? So uh, I had my own sort of two hundred grand at that point, and I had uh, got together some friends and family, and the and the, the other guy Richard who helped me seed the business, and together we got together three million uh, for about ten or twelve people, and that became the initial capital for a fund. So that was in late two thousand seven. Uh, Enter oh eight. And the first month I was operating, I lost 10% for people. Um, so you can imagine the reaction to start with, month number one. And it just got progressively worse throughout the year. So impossible to add any new clients that year. Uh, basically that year I just kind of sat around and read more books and um, tried to learn. Uh, I, I studied this book called The Anatomy of the Bear Market. So I wanted to make myself an expert on that, so I could identify when the market had bottomed. Uh, and so for, progressively through that year, uh, I lost about, I don't know, 30, maybe 35% of clients' money, 2008. And I had this one client, he was the largest client, and he'd ring up every day and sort of say, how much have you lost, how much have you lost? Uh, and then it got to the point uh, when Lehman Brothers collapsed in October, he said, if you lose me any more money, I'm gonna take everything I've got out. And he was the largest client, so I thought, oh, okay, well, I'd better listen to him and basically just sold everything that was left. And he said, oh, okay, that's good. Well, I'll, I'll just leave it in there and we'll see how we go. Started next year, because I'd read that book and everything, uh, I got the impression that in early '09 that uh, this was the bottom. Uh, so I started investing the money. I didn't tell the client because he'd probably pull his money out. Uh, and then all of a sudden I rang him and said, oh, oh we're up 10%. And that was April 09. And he says, oh, this is, no, 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 no. Back into cash. But fortunately, you know, I didn't listen to him. And uh, as the months went by, I was up another 10, up another 10. And finally, by the end of the year, I uh, made 105% in 09. So everyone had made back their losses. They were making money. And because that was so rare at the time, uh, 
and the local media was really helpful. Uh, they wanted to support the underdog, and they gave me some press and some airtime. And that local media support allowed me to bring on some new clients in those early years. The economics of running a fund, like a lot of people might have heard of the idea of like, uh, what is it, two, two and two. Two and 20. Two and 20, two and 20. So on a $3 million fund, there's not a lot to get two and 20 from, especially if you're going backwards. Well, I wasn't charging two and 20, I was charging one and 10. Right. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, there's not a lot to come, to come and go by. Uh, I just had to back myself that it was scalable. And so 1 in 10, is that 1% of funds under management and then 10% of returns? Yep, 10% of the gains, yeah. Yeah, and so if there's no gains, how did you survive through those first couple of years? It's a really good question, uh, with difficulty. Uh, so... Out of that 200 grand, I set aside 100 grand uh, to live off. Uh, I was had a partner uh, and, a, and a new baby at that stage. Uh, so I was, I was 28 now. Uh, and difficulty, so just ate through that. And then when that went, um, sold the car. Uh, so that gave us another 20 grand. And then when that went, went on to trade me and sold the stereo and sold the couch and a few other things and cut back living expenses to uh, like how a student lives, basically. And during that time, reading reading every book you can and hoping that you're going to see a market turn. Yeah, exactly. I, I imagine that, you know, those kind of moments where the market does turn and you're able to get things at their best value don't come around too often. Uh, so, you know, that would explain maybe being able to return well on that first year. But then how did you keep uh, managing to to get the returns, to keep growing? Well, I found a bit of a niche in the market uh, as to where it's, uh, as to where you can go to generate outsized returns. And it tends to be businesses that are, that are smaller and kind of emerging. You know, you all that look back as Apple, Microsoft, um, Uber, all these businesses, they all started somewhere. And so the key is to identify them early, basically. There's no point buying, um, well, you, you can still buy McDonald's today, but you're not going to kind of get the return you would have got 30 years ago. So the key is to identify a business that's small and growing with a large addressable market. And if you can do that and get in relatively early, then that's your opportunity to, to land a 10, 20 bagger investment. And you only need one or two of those. Uh, to make everything. So I typically would make sort of 15 investments and hope that one or two of those would be real winners. And how do you know when to kind of keep riding it and how do you know when to sell out of them, either up or down? That's definitely the hard part (laughs) Uh, because everyone, you know, uh, we suffer from the sort of a bias that it's hard to sell something to to take a loss. But essentially, you know, if you've got your portfolio and you have something that's underperforming, uh, and you reassess, well, is this is this still the same scalable business that I thought it could be? If it is, then maybe it's just a temporary hiccup. Uh, if it's not, then you, that's your decision should be to get out. So if the, if something material changes, 
like in the market or management or competition or yeah. trends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll change your thesis rather than hold on to it. Yeah, so it shouldn't necessarily be determined by where the price has gone, by just by what's changed in the underlying business and their outlook. So do you have kind of like, you know, criteria, you know, 10 criteria for a company that you invest in and then you check back regularly to see if any of those criteria have changed so that you aren't um, held by that? Because I'm always fascinated with people who are successful traders because as you mentioned, that kind of endowment uh, bias that people have means that people will make up all kinds of stories for why the thing they have is better than the thing that um, <laughs> that then it is. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's all yeah. There is so many different biases that have been created. Words that are created for this scenario, uh, and sort of the cognitive dissonance of you ignore information that might alter your view. Uh, so it, it's very hard, um, you know. And it's if it was easy, then everyone would be doing it, and it looks easy, right? Um, you can all identify a business that's done well and say, well, hey, guy, I can just pick the next one. Can't be that hard, um, but it is. Because along the way, uh, prices go up and prices go down and, uh, you know, Trump gets elected and then there's, uh, you know, wars in Iraq and all kinds of things which affect, affect prices but don't necessarily affect your investment. And so you have to determine is what's going on in the world actually going to affect the value of my company that I've invested in in five years' time. Over that time, so so you built up over 10 years to get to a point of having a billion under management, which sounds like an awful lot, but I guess it's probably not that big in the scheme of the really big kind of uh, what the banks and the private kind of big w- private wealth kind of companies are are managing. Like, what what does it? How much more difficult does it get when you are managing money at that scale? Finding small cap companies where you can get in and buy for a good price and not have to be playing in the same realm as these bigger companies that are buying maybe the more stable and lower return stocks? Yeah, the job gets harder. Uh, And so now we don't just look at Australia and New Zealand, we look further afield. Um, We have an office in the UK to help us look for European and and more global, small, smaller businesses to do the same thing. So when you look at it on a global scale, there's lots of opportunity. There's lots of small businesses around the world. Uh, But in Australia and New Zealand, uh, there's not so many. The other thing that's changed in the last decade is that fewer and fewer companies come to the market. Uh, they tend to, tend to stay private, which makes it a little bit harder as well now. So it's definitely a challenge. Yeah, like the growth of private equity would mean that you're not getting these small cap uh, stocks getting on the market. They're staying staying private. Yeah, exactly. They are staying private. Um and maybe they're coming to the to the market at a much bigger level than coming on as a fifty or a hundred million dollar business. And the other big trend that you mentioned just before that must make life pretty hard uh, investing funds at the moment is that global uncertainty. Like it seems like between Brexit, uh, NATO being pulled apart, Trump, trade wars with China, like a lot of these things that are the existing kind of order and stability that allow markets and growth and the like are all in the process of being unpicked yet stock markets are at all-time highs asset classes are at all-time highs it doesn't make a lot of sense to um you know people that are have been living in a world of kind of rational numbers i guess what's what we call noise so it's all noise 
uh, and unless it's affecting the underlying earnings of the business, it's just, that's it, it's noise. Uh, there's always something going on in the world. If you look at a like a historical chart of events for the last hundred years, you'll see every year there's something to worry about. Uh, and probably with today's media, we're more aware of things to worry about than we might have been 20 years ago. You mentioned uh, earlier a little bit about KiwiSaver, meaning that there's been a growth in the industry and awareness and people involved in investment as well. Um, Tell me about starting Juno KiwiSaver and what the idea is there. So Pi as a business basically caters uh, for people you know, who've, who've done well in life and that they, you know, what we will call high net worths. Um, but Juno KiwiSaver is, you know, started on a belief that everyone can be an investor and it shouldn't matter how much you've got, but you should be able to invest for life. And the great thing that the government started in 2007 is a KiwiSaver scheme to allow people to build their own retirement savings and not, you know, and have a lump sum at the end, which they aren't going to have if they're relying on super. Uh, so the idea basically is that we want out. We wanted. Well, I wanted a KiwiSaver scheme that was going to be the best offering out there. So you know, how, what, how, what makes it the best offering, or how can we design something to be the best offering? Uh, the first thing to, is to really focus on actually educating people about investment. Um, so we previously, and we currently still have uh, an investing education magazine, which was already called Juno. So I thought, well, we'll use that same now same name because uh, it's got a pedigree of uh, investor education uh, but we'll really build on that and then what else you know works is well we'll com- continue pies sort of similar investment style uh, we think we can beat the market doing that way and then the last point is um, we looked at what people were getting charged and the small investors were getting charged a lot of money so People who've got five thousand in KiwiSaver, or even less than that, were still getting charged fees, and and that felt wrong. So we came up with a scheme that's basically free if you've got no money. So if you're if you're under eighteen or your balance is under five thousand um, dollars, you come to Juno and you don't get charged anything. So that allows people in those early years to anything they make in returns is theirs. It's not taken away in fees, and you can imagine if you've got a thousand dollars. Uh, and you're paying $36 a year in fees, and the market's flat. You know, within three years, you know, you've lost 100 over 100 bucks, 10 percent of your money. So that that, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, so we've done that, and then we thought, well, you know, we can do it all the way through the scale as we'll have low fees um, right the way through. So it's education, it's uh, low fees, and trying to be the best performance. And that compounding effect of not losing money to fees over the long term in compounding interest. It's, it's kind of hard for people to ever comprehend just how, I mean, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but, you know, the Einstein quote uh, that the, the only thing he doesn't understand is the, the magic or the power of compound interest. Like, yeah. it's amazing the difference that lower fees and slightly higher performance makes over the life of the investment. Yeah, I mean, if you go onto our website, you can go into our calculator. And uh, we did a, th- a recent campaign, um, just finished last week, actually, that, the average person by switching the KiwiSaver to Juno saves $108,000 extra. And that's just from compounding um, lower fees. Uh, it's quite staggering. And, you know, people who are on higher wages can save a lot more. And then the investment philosophy there as well. 
a lot of the low fees uh, schemes and the kind of low fees index funds and the like are these big funds that just track the market, don't they? But that's not your model. No, uh, more and more investment is going into passive. Uh, uh, and by passive, we mean it just tracks the market. There's no decision made. Uh, so in some ways, that starts to make our job easier uh, because there's less people turning over rocks. Everyone's just doing the same thing. And if everyone's doing the same thing, then you can do something different uh, and you can outperform. You can also underperform, uh, but you have a greater chance of, of outperforming the market if everyone's doing the same thing. When it comes to kind of getting people onto KiwiSaver and that education thing, I mean, there are so many people that have never changed out of their original, um, you know, the inertia of wherever they got put in the first place. Lots of people just haven't even got bothered and started them for, for kids or, or whatever it might be. Financial inducements haven't worked that the government's given. Um, you, you know, how do you actually move people who, who maybe aren't engaged uh, when you've got a message that is maybe um, at the more complicated end because people have to understand the difference between an active or a... Uh, passive, like, do people just kind of throw up their hands and, and, and not get involved? Well, I think the more we get out the message that, you know, you could be 100, 100 grand better off basically doing nothing, just changing pr to a pr different provider, um, I think those are the kind of things that start to resonate with people, um, particularly when you can switch providers in two minutes. Uh, it's not that onerous. And also, you know, do you really want to be um, with the largest bank uh, whose profits all go back to Australia if you're a Kiwi? Is that is that what you want to do? Um, or do you want to support um, local businesses and local providers who are actually doing things cheaper for you anyway? That kind of thing of education and telling a story um, around the investment, I see that you've done a bunch of kind of, um, you, you know, letters through your newsletter and the like, uh, and are a fan of the kind of the most famous letter writer in investment, Warren Buffett. T tell me about your, your interest in Warren Buffett. So, uh, you know, Buffett is the world's greatest investor. He's compounded his money close to 20% since the 60s. Um, is he still the richest man or second richest behind Gates? Somewhere up there. Staggering, really. Uh, lives in the same house, drives the same car, all that kind of stuff. And so he's a bit of an investing legend. Uh, and when it was... I first went there in 2010... Because that stage he was 80, and I thought, well, I better go because he might die. Uh, so I wanted to go and see him um, and hear from the Oracle of Omaha uh, before, you know, before he passed away. Um, actually, funny story, I was going through U.S. immigration, and the guy said, what's your purpose for this visit? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to see the Oracle. And oh, he didn't like that. <laughs> No, so uh, I had to kind of quickly say exactly what I was doing. Um, anyway, so I uh, went to see the Oracle and um, listened to him, and yeah, it was really moving because, you know, going to see you're in a room with a stadium of 40,000 people, and he, he sits there from 9 o'clock in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, 80 years of age. He gets his energy from Cherry Coke and sees candy. He, he literally doesn't stop talking for six hours. Uh, and it's amazing for someone his age. And there's just questions from the audience, unscripted. He'll answer anything. Uh, sometimes it's stupid. He'll tell someone to sit down. But I think that's pretty unique. Uh, 
And so I've, I've been back five times. Um, I haven't been in the last couple of years, but I, I went for a while almost every year. He's got an offsider as well called Charlie Munger. Not many people know about this guy because he's very low profile. But so when I, yeah, Charlie at the first time, he would have been 88. So God knows, he's probably 97 or something now. Yeah, mm. they're still going on cherry coke and uh, candy. <laughs> and and not not um, everyone's kind of idea of a, a you know a mecca to visit. But in your company, is it something that you've kind of built up to to get other people involved too? Yeah, I've, I've any of the staff who've wanted to go, I've said you know this is part of your professional development. You, you you're happy to go. Quite a few have gone. We've even taken a couple of clients. Uh, yeah, I mean Omaha, Nebraska is. It's it's not going to be on your bucket list, that's for sure. <laughs> in in terms of like the people that you have hired as well, because when you came into, you know, the industry, you weren't the picture of uh, the people that would be running funds and and, and managing wealth. How have you? Uh, I I see that you've um, brought in some pretty unexpected kind of people to the funds world. Yeah, I love hiring people who aren't industry norms and and taking them out of areas, uh, which because you don't then come in with sort of preconceived ideas about how to manage money and, and how to run the business. Uh, so, you know, we, we've, we've also got people from all over the world um, that work for us too. But, for example, uh, you know, we have a couple of lawyers uh, who are our uh, investment managers at the moment. Uh, and that, that means they're quite good at forensic things and digging. Um, that was the sort of background, and that seems to have worked well. Uh, I've got a, a journalist now who, who manages money. Um, I've got a guy who was just a business entrepreneur. He's in there. And in the Juno you know, Kiwi Saver, the guy who's running that um, was a policeman uh, for 20 years. Uh, yeah, there's people come from all. All different places. Rock stars fronting things for Juno? Yes, yep, yep. We have a guy, uh, Rowan Crow, uh, who was, um, yeah, a former Goodnight Nurse uh, band member who's our brand ambassador. Yeah, so I, I just believe in hiring good people. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who, who have got a hunger and a passion and an interest in something, yet maybe the, the doors aren't open for them and um, they're wondering about making a new of it? Well, you have to just, that's it, you just have to make a go of it. You have to just keep trying and um, it's, you know, if you think I started in the late 90s and here we are having this interview 20 years later, it's not an overnight success. Um, it takes a long time, a lot of hard graft, a lot of stress um, to get to be where you want to be. So you can't just try and, and give up at the first um, turned out. And how will you, you know, looking at it from the outside, getting to kind of those big milestones and, and having returned like 350 million to clients is a wild number to, to have returned. Like how how will you define success? Because in many ways you're, you're really, you're younger than the average person probably coming into the industry of uh, being a wealth manager. That's right, yeah. Still 39. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Success, it's an interesting one. It's kind of like happiness, right? How do you define that? Uh, success is when you're content, I think. Like when you're happy, when you're content with the with the outcome. You say, oh, yeah, 
that's I'm all right. that's all right. I'm happy with that. I'm content with what what I've done or what um, I've achieved for clients. But in saying that, to be driven, you have to always be looking for the next um, the next hurdle to get over. So uh, you can't really sit back and put your feet on the desk and say, oh, I made it. Otherwise, you, if you did that, you really have to stop managing money. Uh, so you have to keep striving. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story of Pi Funds today. That's Mike Taylor, CEO and founder. Thanks thank so you. Much. Thank you so much to Alice Wood-Bedell for producing. And thank you for having us along and listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.